in our next session. We trust that you are not brain dead yet, trying to juggle that. We will try to get done here maybe a little earlier so you can have a good lunch. And Matt, he is so pleased that you're here. He's gone out to get you all steak. So <laughs> you just thank him for it. He's a great pastor. Yeah, just. We, uh, we're glad that you're here today. And I've been asked to uh, consider this question, is the Antichrist living today? And my first response when I saw that, when Pastor and I were corresponding, I just laughed. I said, you know, what are you going to do with that? And, uh, but it's a legitimate question because there, there's a lot that's being said about the Antichrist. There are people that write books. Uh, there's a lot of um, hysteria. There's a lot of differing opinions. There's conferences. It's uh, sensationalized. And we want to look at that, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to package some of this stuff in your heart. I'm sorry that the outline that you have is not going to be as good as uh, I had hoped, uh, because I didn't put, I had the PowerPoint done, I had my thoughts together, but I didn't really give attention to this, but I think that you'll be able to uh, follow me as we go through this. Uh, on your first page, the Antichrist is a real person. Real person who will stand in this earth someday. It'd be interesting, I won't ask you to, but it would be interesting to ask you to answer this question, how many think he's here now? But he will be one day. Uh, the term Antichrist is a term that's used in the Bible in the first line of those verses, 1 John, 1 John 4, 2 John 7. The Apostle John uses this term, the Antichrist. Just think of the term itself, Antichrist. The word anti is simply a Greek preposition, meaning opposite of or opposed to. It's just a preposition stuck to the word Christ, which simply means that this person that we're going to be talking about today is the exact opposite of who Jesus was when he was here ministering among men, the exact opposite. The thinking of the Savior, he came because he loved men, he was concerned for men, he left it all for us. The Antichrist has nothing within him. He will have nothing within him that gives him any feeling toward any man. There will be nothing within him, any kind of emotion that would cause him to feel compassion, maybe feel a twinge of, oh, that's too bad, or even a little tear. None of that. He's just, he's just not that. He is the exact opposite. We know the Savior was very gentle. He was compassionate. That's one of the great things about the Savior. He revealed the truth of God. He put his hands on people's lives to care for them. The Antichrist, on the other hand, the opposite of, he is savage. He is ruthless. He will be cruel. He will be awful. 
real person, but we're, the pendulum is swinging the other way. And we know that Jesus, he, he came to please his heavenly father. His goal was to encourage people to come to God, to learn about God, and to trust him. Just the opposite when it comes to the Antichrist, whose only ambition in all of his vileness is to mock God and in any way he can ruin or distort or damage anything that God has ever done in this world. He is a God hater. He has no intention of pleasing God. It's not within him. He is the personification of sin. All that sin is, he is the embodiment of that. He is a real person. And when we think of Satan, uh, the next question, the Antichrist or the statement, he will be an awful person. I think that comes with the territory, just thinking about it. But Satan will raise this man up and energize him so that he will be a tool so that God, Satan will use this man to somehow unleash all this vile and hatred and stuff that he, he wants anything he can imagine, he's going to want the, the Antichrist to be able to manufacture in the world. Not a good man, as we can see that. And uh, we want to talk about him today a little bit. I have in the next page, we have a series of texts from Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 28. Really, I'm... I didn't catch this. Uh, it should be the whole chapter, so it's not just 13, 28. We'll talk about this. But what I'd like to do is to focus on the Antichrist. Now, you like these pictures. You, you get what I'm thinking of when I think of the Antichrist, huh? In the book of Daniel, in chapter uh, 7, God gives Daniel a vision to see how the future of the world is going to unfold. The whole chapter is about that. He, Daniel is able to see four different world empires, empires that rule the world before they actually happened. Babylon, we know history, Medes and Persia, Alexander the Great, and the Roman Empire. And he is in the Babylonian Empire when he writes this. They have conquered Israel. But as God gives to Daniel that overview of these world governments that dominate the world, history tells us, and we're not surprised, that it happens just like that. And that the different kingdoms that uh, hold control over the world are described in characteristics that fit them personally long before they even happen. God, God really does know how to handle uh, the human race. He's very much in control. But as Daniel looks at this, he, he sees all of this. And when it comes to what we know as the Roman Empire, he becomes very troubled. If you'll notice on your sheet of the verses there on page 26... In verse 15, he's, it says that he is troubled in his spirit. He is disturbed. Some of your Bibles, grieved and troubled. And all the way down to the end, in verse 28, right in the middle, deeply troubled. 
what he sees is very unsettling to him as, as God kind of just unfolds this panoramic view of world governments. And so Daniel has some questions in this vision as he's seeing these things. He's very troubled. He asks someone who is in the vision with him, as is often the case, as God gave people visions, some questions about this, this Roman Empire, this fourth kingdom that's so it's, it's vicious, it's just awful and what it's doing, trampling the earth and things like that. And as the person who is answering Daniel's question and gives more information, during this time of information, we have our first reference to the Antichrist. This is the first picture we have of him. Because when this person who is interpreting the vision and giving more information, when he talks about what is the Roman Empire, as he continues his discussion, we see the Antichrist and the Savior coming back from heaven, destroying the Antichrist and, and taking care of the world. So we know from just this chapter that there is going to be a connection between the Roman Empire that we know of the past and a future empire that will rule the world over which the Antichrist will be its leader one day. There's a connection there. You've heard the phrase, the revived Roman Empire. That's where they get this from here. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to, on the next page, on page 27, instead of going through the whole prophecy and kind of I'd like to be selective. What I'd like to do is show you what this man becomes. We will look at chief characteristics of his life, and we want to see the kind of person that he becomes. And just, uh, it's a general introduction. This is a first snapshot that we have of the Antichrist. And let me just pull out some key figures. Now, this is what I believe he will become it's really not how he starts out, although he's still evil, because Satan will energize this guy. You remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus said to the religious leaders of Jerusalem, I have come in the name of my Father, and you have not received me, but another will come in his own name you will receive. Remember him saying that? In Revelation chapter 6, when we we're given a description, a picture of the Antichrist, we find out that he is a wheeler and a dealer, he is a great diplomat, and he's able to accomplish things diplomatically. He brings people, conflicts to an end. He looks like he's going to be a great peacemaker. If he was here today, he would go to Russia and Ukraine and settle that. If he were here today, he, he would, in his, as he begins things, uh, he would go to China and Taiwan and settle things. He, he is a master of manipulation, but as he presents himself to the world initially, he is the answer to all of their problems. And as we'll see, he even brokers a deal so that the nation of Israel can rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. Now, how do you think that'd go over today? 
Arabs wouldn't think too much of that. And the Muslims, they'd hate that, but he's going to pull it off because he's going to, and Daniel says he's going to make an, an agreement with Israel, and they will be allowed to go ahead and, and uh, take care of building their temple. We'll talk more about that. But what we see here, what concerns da uh, Daniel so much is this person that we call the Antichrist. I have his words you have the phrase, a mouth speaking great things. That phrase is used four times in this chapter. When he initially sees the Antichrist, he talks about this in verse 8 and 11. And he talks, he is enamored by this speaking. He just, he is, uh, the verses that you have here, the translations, boasting arrogantly, spoke arrogantly, spoke words of arrogance pompous words, great boasts. The one thing that he wants us to see is that the Antichrist will become a person who is a kind of an in-your-face loud guy. He just gets right in there and he doesn't hold anything back. He, he becomes very arrogant, he's harsh, He's brash. He puts himself right up in front and pushes everybody around. He is in charge. And he has reasons why he thinks he ought to be in charge and everybody else get out of his way. That's the arrogant boasts. That's the mouth. The second thing we are told about him, oh, in the second before, when he just sees this man in verses 8 and 11, and we see this phrase, after the questions, John is drawn, or Daniel is drawn to this guy, in verse 20 and verse 25, we see this same expression being used, these pompous words, these, these uttering great boasts. In fact, in verse 25, you'll notice on your, in your sheet there, uh, in that uh, chapter, that he will speak pompous things against the Most High. This guy has no trouble taking center stage in front of all the world and mocking and cursing and challenging God. Unfortunately, the world loves it because they have a heart just like him in the tribulation. Whew, not a guy you'd want to bring home to mom. There's no question about that. His appearance in verse 20, it says, this man is more stout <laughs> then his, his uh, uh, more stout than his fellows. And I'm thinking, what in the world is that? So that's when you get out all your books and try to figure out what it means. And it simply means he's intimidating. Intimidating. He, he is not a guy that you like to see come into the room. I remember when I was in fourth, fifth grade, some of you maybe had this experience in grade school, teacher needed to go ahead and leave the room, maybe called out the office or a parent conference or something like that, and gave us all homework to do. Stay quiet, do your homework, don't get into trouble. Now, I don't know why they would say that to us in the fourth and fifth grade, but the teacher leaves, and it's not too long before kids begin to whisper, kind of look at each other, maybe laugh or do things like this. And, and, and not get out of hand, just, just being kids. And I remember the, uh, that happened once to us in our class, and we were kind of enjoying not having the teacher around. 
And then all of a sudden, the principal walked in, walked up to the front of the class. Boy, did we get quiet in a hurry. And I'm sure he thought we were all angels because we were looking right at the books, right at the homework, you know, trying to get everything. He's going to intimidate people. In his appearance, he just takes people on and people back off. It's, it's just something. He is imposing. He is intimidating. I have uh, his... His, the man is disturbing, I have in my notes, uh, his appearance, he's intimidating, and his actions, I have a whole series of, of, of things that I put down because of the text. I put down he is ruthless, he is blasphemous, he is savage, he's delusional, he's aggressive, anything you, all of those words really are descriptive of him because that's what the text is saying. And that's why John is actually just, he's so focused on this man. He's just so out there in evil land. And then the last thing is his actions and behaviors. We're told in this, uh, Daniel is told that this kingdom that will rule the world, the revived Roman Empire, is a collection or a group of 10, let's say, men who have managed to gain absolute control over the world. They're kings. 10 men, federation, whatever they might be, but they have managed to gain absolute control over the whole world. Well, in this chapter, one of the things that the Antichrist does they're referred to as kings and horns and, and things like that. But it says he rips up some of these kings, roots them, roots and all, and just destroys them. That's part of his behavior. He, he will be a man who does not tolerate any discussion, any opposition, any second opinions. Are we going to vote on it? I mean, he is... He is successful in destroying some of the men who are in that leadership position, and they're just gone. Some of the other things that we bring out of there, he speaks great words against the most guy. He has no problem on the world stage mocking and cursing and defaming God, challenging God, calling him out. He wears out the saints. He calls the world to persecute, openly persecute any person anywhere in the world that has any allegiance, any thoughts about God. He wears them out. Believers in the tribulation are being killed, and he's leading the charge. And the last thing, he seeks to change times and seasons. That's an unusual phrase. Times and season is a phrase that refers to things that are uh, a natural part of life, an established part of life. Um, you work, you get paid. Uh, you go to work certain hours, you come home and rest. There are some things that are just a certain part of life that's recognized in the world. You buy it, it's yours. You are the owner. He's going to rearrange, try to rearrange every aspect of life. He's going to try to redo it. That's why he's delusional. He doesn't say that he does, but he's just going to tear everything apart. 
Now, we're asking the question, is the Antichrist living now? Well, when we think about our faith, we learned in our first session, my first session, that it's better if we allow the scripture to shape our faith, not necessarily traditions. The second thing that we learned today from this study is that whenever we have a question about anything, we need to be totally convinced that the answer is in the Bible. No matter what question it is about Bible things, personal things, God will give us the direction we need. He'll give us the answer in the scriptures. That's just how he's given us the Bible, and that's, it works that way. So if we are asking the question, is the Antichrist living now? Well, let's think about this first picture. Do you see anywhere in the world where there is a group of 10 kings, 10 individuals who have gained a total control over the, over the world? Well, no, you don't see that anywhere. What you see is 193 nations in the United Nations and they can't do anything, okay? They're, they're just a mess. Do we see anyone on the world stage that is so bold and arrogant as to boldly call out God and mock God and to challenge him and be so vile? Do we have anything, anyone that's doing that on the world stage? And we would have to say, well, not, not now. Is there across the world, globally, a unified effort to remove believers from this earth? No, we don't, we don't see that either. So if we look at this passage that gives us a glimpse of the ministry, the first glimpse of the Antichrist, and we ask, the, well, is he living now? The answer may be probably not if we don't see those things. But just hang on to that, okay? You see how I'm using the Bible? The Bible gives us this panoramic view, but we don't see any of those things right now. The second picture we have and, uh, is more of a specific event, a specific picture is in the next chapter, uh, we find it in uh, where Daniel in chapter 29, or chapter 9, and I don't have that in your notes, but in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, Jesus repeats this. He quotes this. When you see the desolation, abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel, then run for the hills. So Jesus refers to this. Paul will refer to that. We'll see that in a minute. But there is a small, the second picture we have of, of the Antichrist is very specific. He is very active. He is in the location of the city of Jerusalem. He is in a Jewish temple. Jewish temple will have been rebuilt. Uh, Jewish worship will be vibrant and full. People will be coming and in worshiping God as they have in, in the past, and there will be a great uh, celebration time there. It'll just be ministry or uh, worship for the Jewish people in the temple. 
And we are told that at this particular point, the Antichrist enters the temple and desecrates everything. Now remember, this is the guy that made the treaty with Israel that they could build their temple. He was setting things up. And he, he walks into the temple. He says, Daniel, that he puts an end to the temple worship. No more sacrifice, no more offerings. He desecrates everything. He goes to the place that has been reserved for the presence of God. You remember in the Old Testament that when the nation of Israel was wandering through the desert, God went with them. And they built a temple, he says in the Exodus, so that he could dwell among them. And in this particular place, the tabernacle, there was one place that was reserved just for the presence of God. That's where the high priest went in once a year. But they could see the pillar a fire at night, the cloud during the day, they could always look and see that God was with them. In the temple, Solomon's temple, later in uh, Herod's temple, uh, there was that same construction, a very central place where God was, uh, the presence of God was to be celebrated. Well, in this new temple, the Antichrist will go into this place that has been reserved for God. He will set down on the seat of God between the two cherubims. And it says in Scripture that he will set himself up in God's temple and present himself as God. He will declare to the world, I am the only God you need. And that's when Jesus says in Matthew, he says, when that happens, you've got to run for your life because he announces that he wants all Jewish people killed. The book of Zechariah says that two out of every three Jewish people will be killed at this time. That's just in Jerusalem. And it's just an awful thing. And that's also when Jesus said the persecution will become so bad that if Jesus did not come back, there wouldn't be anybody left. This guy is just, he, he is just awful. And what happens is that we have this general picture of who he is, then we have this special event where he goes into the temple and he does this, and Jesus picks right up on that and says, you have got to run for your life. Don't look back because of the persecution that's going to follow. That's the great tribulation. That's just an awful thing. So is the Antichrist living today? Let's let the Bible answer our question or give us some help in that. Is there another temple in Jerusalem right now where the people are coming in and worshiping God the way they've done in the past? Uh, not yet. Well, if the temple's not there, then if a question is asked, well, is he living now? Uh, the answer may be, uh, maybe not. Because he's linked, his activity is linked to this temple. Key, critical time. All right. We're getting closer. In your sheet, you do have, on page 27, you do have 2 Thessalonians 2. And this is really a classic passage, and this will give us our final answer to the question. And we will give you an answer, at least one that, as Pastor says, the plane will land. Okay, we'll come up with something here. 
But now let's come to the New Testament where God in his word, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. And notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, notice how he begins. He wants them to remember what he taught them about the rapture. Pastor touched on this. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. I wish we had the time to get into this and to share with you just how tender it is. Do you remember when Jesus said with tears to the nation of Israel, how often I would have gathered you to myself as a, as a hen gathers her chicks? Jesus can't wait to have you with him. <laughs> he, that's, he loves you enough. He loves his people. He just, this idea of just come to me, you know, like a mom picking up her kids or kids running to, to dad. That's what he's referring to here when he says, now about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered unto him. He's asking them to remember what he taught them about the rapture. Because notice in the second paragraph, he says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I was telling you these things or I taught you these things? He's just kind of reminding them of what what, what he's taught them in the past. And he says, just, I want you to think about the rapture. And now here's the key verse, verse two. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word or by mouth or by a letter, asserting that the day of the Lord that's the Lord's return to earth, has already come. The King James talks about being troubled in mind and agitated and all stirred up. Somebody wrote a letter to the church and said something like this, and they signed Paul's name to it. I don't know how to tell you this, but the rapture happened and Jesus missed you. And now you're in the tribulation. The day of the Lord is at hand. Both events are being discussed in verses 1 and 2. And he's sharing with them. He says, now just calm down. Calm down. You haven't missed the rapture. Jesus didn't forget you. And you're not in the tribulation. Now they're going through a lot of persecution, but it's not what the tribulation is going to be. Are you following me? Somebody wrote a letter, signed Paul's name, got them all stirred up because the message was Jesus came, but he missed you. You missed the rapture. Jesus forgot you. And now you're in the tribulation. Messed them all up. And he says, you got to calm down. Just calm down. The rapture has not happened. Jesus didn't forget you. And you're not in the tribulation. And then he says, now, I told you about these things before, and there are a couple of things that are going to happen. There's going to be this rebellion, there's this revolt, falling away from God, but there's going to be this antichrist thing, going into the temple and doing, you know, setting and making these decrees and things, but none of that has happened yet. And that's what you see in this particular passage. He says in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or his worship. He sets himself up in God's temple, 
proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things. But none of these things have happened yet. The Antichrist is going to be very active. You haven't missed the rapture. You're not in the tribulation. The Antichrist is not here. And then he says, because there is a person that's holding everything back. And the Antichrist won't even be revealed until this person steps out of the way. Notice on your sheet on page 27, in that second paragraph at verse 6, you know that, and now you know what is holding him back, the next line down, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And there are several references. Then the Antichrist will be revealed, but not for a while, because there is someone who is holding this back. And it's definitely a person, because it says in verse 7, the one who is now holding him back. Uh, some of your Bibles have the word hinder. And we think, okay, if there is a person holding Satan's work back, it's got to be a supernatural person. I mean, who is able to hold back or to restrain the activity of Satan? It has to be a supernatural person. He's holding him back until he's taken out of the way. Now, how are we to understand that? When he's taken out of the way, then the Antichrist will be revealed. Satan will use him, and that, that whole thing will start. But not until this person steps out of the way. We believe at Mount Calvary, and, and there are a lot of uh, just Bible-believing authors and, and, and churches that hold to this. Uh, we know that the Holy Spirit lives within every believer across the world. We know that, and we're glad for that. And the Holy Spirit's ministry is very powerful in our life. But collectively, the presence of the Holy Spirit ministry in our life and the changes that it creates, the Spirit of God uses this as kind of a restraint on evil. God uses the testimony of the church, the testimony of believers, the lives they live, uh, their actions, uh, a lot of things. But the Holy Spirit is very dominant in that area. Now, he's already told them in verse 1, now remember what I told you about the rapture, and he uses the same terminology that's brought from chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, so we know he's talking about the rapture, are being gathered together unto him. When all of the believers are lifted off of this earth, a significant ministry, a significant impact of the Holy Spirit will also be withdrawn. We believe that that refers to the Bible or the rapture, that moment when Jesus brings his children home. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit, who is indwelling us, that significant ministry of impact will now also be removed from the world. It's kind of like he steps aside, and that's when Satan goes right to it to raise this man to begin to use him so that all the destruction that Satan wants will begin to be unleashed on this world. In fact, in chapter 1, if you want to look at it sometimes, it is an account of what will happen when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation, not the rapture. He's talked about that in the first book. He talks about it here 
It hasn't happened yet, but he gives a good account of it in chapter 1 where the Lord will return from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who have not obeyed the gospel. These are the people that have been persecuting Christians throughout the tribulation, and he will remove them. They are gone forever. He will pay them back, and it's, a, it's quite a description of that moment when Jesus comes back. He talked about it in Matthew 25 with his angels, and believers are going to just be removed from this world because it also says in chapter 1, he will be admired by those who believe because he's delivered them. Jesus has come back. Believers during the tribulation will know that they are delivered. But Paul is saying, none of that's happened yet. You haven't missed the rapture. It hasn't happened yet. Jesus has never forgotten you. How could he do that? He, he can't wait to get his arms on you. He hasn't forgot you. And you're not in the tribulation, even though you're going through some difficulty. You're not going through the tribulation because the person who's holding all of this back is still here. None of these things have happened yet. None of them have happened until he steps out of the way, and then that will all happen. Now, let's bring it back to our questions. Is the Antichrist living now? Well, let's just suppose we're in the year 2023, I believe. Let's suppose the rapture takes place in four years. I am not date setting, okay? <laughs> I'm not doing that. Let's just suppose, for sake of he comes in four years, 2027. If the rapture were to happen in four years, and Satan would begin that work of working through the Antichrist, then it would mean, yes, he's alive today. He doesn't know who he is. He won't until Satan gets a hold of him. But it could be that he is alive. We'll watch from heaven as we're raptured. It'll be a nice, safe place to watch, and we will see how this all unfolds. But if the question is asked, is he alive? Well, let the Bible do provide the answers. The first picture, those general characteristics, we don't see that federation maintaining a solid control over the world. We don't see that happening. We don't. So maybe not this man and his behavior, his words and actions. We certainly, in the second picture, very specific area in the area of Jerusalem, the temple, and what he does to, to proclaim to the world that he is God, we, don't, we haven't seen that. We haven't seen the temple there yet. But when we come to this passage in 2 Thessalonians, it reminds us that when it happens, when the rapture takes place, things will happen quickly. And Paul makes it very clear by using the word revealed once the Antichrist is here, everybody's going to know it, but he's not here yet, at least in an operating capacity. Is he living? Well, could be. It depends how close the rapture is. So let the Bible answer your questions. God always has an answer for your questions. You can trust him for that.